Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. (laughs) It started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. (laughs) Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, and welcome to the Technique Podcast. I am Sam Fry, and this is the podcast where we talk to artists about technology. In today's episode, I interview two people that are behind a whole host of creative, immersive experiences. Here they are. My name is Tom Chambers, and I am one of the directors of the creative technology studio, Random Quark. I'm Theo. I'm um, also director and co-founder of uh, Random Quark, Theo Papathiodoru. And I am also a senior lecturer in the Department of Computing at Goldsmiths, teaching computational art. Yes, today's guests are Tom Chambers and Theo Papathiodorou from the creative technology company Random Quark. Tom is a creative coder, while Theo is both a developer and he runs the MA in Computational Arts at Goldsmiths. I met them both through the company Fanshen, who you might remember from one of our previous episodes, episode 26 on audience-centric theatre. In fact, they mentioned Theo in that episode as he introduced them to their collaborator, Joe McAllister. It's a small world, right? Anyway, in this podcast, Tom and Theo also explain how they met each other when they decided to put on an art hackathon at Ravensbourne University in London. Now, if you are interested in hackathons and how they work, then this should be a good one for you. Since then, they have gone to create a number of immersive technology experiences for organisations as wide-ranging as the NHS and Tommy Hilfiger. Plus, they've created intriguing projects like a mirror that can interpret your emotions. And they're currently working on a series of interactive trees. They explain it better in the podcast, I promise. Anyway, I found them to be great fun to speak to, and I hope that you find this episode a good listen. So I'll jump right into it from the IBM offices in London, where I began by asking them how they got involved in the world of art created with technology. People always seem surprised when I talk about how I got into this sort of region, because I started out, I studied politics, actually at Goldsmiths, where Theo works now. And then I ended up joining Entrepreneurship Program. And it was, I met a lot of really good people. It was a really good program. But it was really not for me. And I ended up leaving that, not knowing what I was going to do and not doing anything for a couple of months. And then I ended up saying, well, like through, through that, I like picked up some tech skills. Like I learned how to program, which I did a bit of as a teenager. And while I, while I was at university, I was sort of, I was thinking about making documentaries. And I, I was really quite inspired by things that Darren Brown did, like sort of just... You know, what I was thinking of as experiences and installations and that sort of thing. But I didn't really have a, 
a box to put it in. And so I started to use my tech skills. I got a job as a web developer and, you know, that was okay. But I was also like, mm, this isn't quite right. And I was like, okay, maybe I can combine the art and the technology and, you know, do something interesting there. Uh, and that was like, that was quite a while before I heard of terms like creative technologists or even was aware that other people were actually doing this stuff. So it was a sort of slow progress to into, you know, that, that kind of field. When I came back to London, I moved back after Entrepreneur First. I thought, okay, I want to put some of the ideas into practice. I'll go to, I'll find out about this place called the Hackspace, which is fantastic. They've got like tons of tools, um, you know, and lots of people as well, like people you can just go and talk to and they'll give you ideas for what you want to do and lots of help. And that was really useful. And then to be honest, I just started Googling stuff and I put in like, you know, creative, creative and technology. And I found, oh, wow, like that's a thing. And then eventually I met Theo. So, Theo wants to put on a hackathon, and I thought, mm, I don't really want to get involved in that. That sounds like a lot of, you know, a lot of time. But I met him, he seemed like a nice guy, and we got on quite well. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do it, but, you know, I'll try and restrict it and not, you know, do too much, put too much effort into it. And then it, it pretty much took over mine, his life, for about three months, uh, organising and putting it on. It was, it, fortunately, it was a really good success, because I was actually quite pessimistic about it. And then we were like... Should we should we start a business together? We both seem to like doing this. Actually, the, the story is uh, a, a little bit funnier than that. It, it was I applied to go to a hackathon, to a creative hackathon, and they rejected me. They said, "Oh, sorry, no, we're full." I said, "Oh, please, you know, I'm doing this. I think I would uh, contribute a lot." They're like, no, sorry. And I was I had just moved back to London. I was a little bit down and out. I was a little bit depressed trying to, you know the first steps that are always the hardest steps when you are in a new city and all these things and I was living really far from the center really far from anything that was of particular interest to me and I thought oh my god this is an event where I have to pay to go to and even they don't want me to go so I just said okay fuck them I'm gonna do I'm gonna run my own hackathon and this way I will be able to attend So I get online and I send an email to the mailing list. Who wants to run a hackathon? And I arranged a meeting. About 10 people showed up. But then by the second, third meeting, everyone had flaked out. And the only remaining collaborator was Tom. Once again, like when I came to London and I was, as I said, a bit lost, like Tom was, you know, like those months, early months, the best thing to do was to try to network yourself. Going to that space again and again and meeting people and talking. I eventually met somebody that we've been working with for so many years. I studied psychology and philosophy in my first degree, and I, when I finished, I was terrified. I thought, what the hell am I going to do with that degree in Greece or anywhere? Then I found that there is this course uh, Imperial and some other universities where you do like a conversion course in computer science. So I was like, oh, perfect. So I, I did that. Then I worked for a few months in uh, Citigroup, And that was dry and painful, and it was all the stuff, the boring stuff that I had learned in my master's degree. And then I went on and I did a PhD. And once again, there was just something always missing. Like, I liked technology. I always liked technology. I liked making things. I liked, I enjoyed programming during my master's and so on. But there was just something missing. And when I finished my degree, my PhD, I was so sick of it. I went back to Greece before the crisis, and I said, okay, I'm going to do something new now. So the idea was to do some business. We had, I had an idea for a business and so on. 
the crisis started a month and a, a year and a half after I went, so that was out of the window. And I was lost for a couple of years. I didn't know what to do. I was again though the, the same mechanism got activated, and I started going here and going there and meeting people. And through those, that period, I met somebody who introduced me to somebody in the Athens School of Fine Arts. They said, "Oh, by the way, do you you have a PhD in computing? Would you like to come and teach?" a course here, teach programming to artists, basically. And I looked a little bit into this, and I looked into that, and I discovered that in 2010, I discovered this huge world of computational art. When I started my PhD in 2002, processing was just really in the very early stages. When I finished, still, if you wanted to do something graphical, it was quite a complicated uh, process. And all of a sudden, you had this thing where you, you, know, you run one command and it draws an ellipse on the screen. It was like a revelation for me. And then I started teaching it. That went quite well. I enjoyed it. And eventually I started a company in Greece. Then I moved here and we joined forces with Tom and so on. Oh, yeah, I, li- I like the idea of creating a community, yeah. And, you know, and bringing those people together. And, and that was really exciting because, um, you know, people who never met before just did really cool things and really inventive things. And, like, on the first day, it was, like, I, I went around, like, trying to work out how everyone was doing. And they all had their, like, heads on the desks. And they were, like, yeah, we're doing fine, we're doing fine. And they were all, like, really panicking. And by the second morning, like, it's sort of, like, you know, the flower had, like, burst into life. And, ever, like, you know, they'd start cutting things and, like, you know, plugging in things. And, like, these sort of ideas started to come together. So, yeah, just to, just to get people coming together and making ideas, I think. And so for you, because you, you talked about Entrepreneur First as a, yeah. as a program, getting involved in that, and I guess you, there must have been something in you that was interested in entrepreneurship and or at least going out and doing your own thing. Were you equally interested in the art side of that time or were you, were you just kind of exploring? And you talked about processing, which is a JavaScript framework, right? Java. A, Java a, sim- a simplified Java framework. Yeah. Was that a technology that you were playing with at the same time, or, or yeah. where, where were you at at that point? Where was that? It's a good question. I was building like websites mostly at that point. Uh, I was like working with JavaScript stuff because that's like what I'd, I'd learned, and I was like most most of my ideas. Like I built something that was what was it called? Like it was it was like a, a satire of like those uh, like list like a hundred things you need to do before you die, and it was like uh, an infinite number of things you need to do before you die. And it would like take in all the text from all those lists and things, and then it would use a like a Markov chain to generate new things. So as he kept scrolling, like more and more things, and they got more and more ridiculous because they were just sort of like random words stuck together. So that, yeah, that was the kind of thing I was doing at that time, like mostly like website stuff because that was what I knew. What drew me towards entrepreneur first actually was the ability to experiment. Like that's why I saw startups being at that time. Like you can come up with an idea like for an alternative way that people should live. Like I think. I think people should organise, you know, football matches like with no leader, and they should have an app to come and do that. And that was that was my principle. I quite quickly realised that, like with startups, if you want to actually make any money, you have to do something that's like what people do now, but very slightly different. Like you know, like Uber, it's a minicab, but you can book it through an app. And like my sort of like radical like lifestyle change was not really going to happen that way. Yeah, I, I would say in, interaction is a big thing. Like if we can if we can get someone to have like just a really exciting magical moment, you know, for thirty seconds or for five minutes, then it's that kind of project, you know. And if there can be some greater meaning behind that, then that's really good as well. 
like you know we want people to explore themselves like we, we built augmented reality mirror you know part of that is about like sort of seeing your own emotions reflected to you and connecting to the world but if you don't if one of our principles like if you don't have like meaning like you know fun interaction then the rest of it is kind of worthless so that's our, that's our first principle of design and playfulness is a big thing like not taking ourselves too seriously i mean we always end up doing things that are a little bit whimsical and uh, like we made uh, an installation for the bma to visualize for the british medical association to visualize some data and how much it costs per year of your life how much do you cost per year of your life to the nhs and we built seven medical cabinets and you would drop a ball and it was each medical cabinet was a marble run and that ball would travel and be bounced around medica- medical instruments and so on and be inside a little virtual world for a while and then come out again. So, like, yeah, things that are not particularly serious, uh, we, we, we tend to like. So what was interesting about that for me was it's explaining something, isn't it, in, in a way that maybe engages someone and then you know, you, you'd ex- I'd expect that you would engage with that because you go, oh, I want to put a marble in there and see, see what yeah. happens. But off the back of that, you're learning something about yeah. how the kind of the wider... NHS, I guess, works? Yeah, the, the brief yeah. was to communicate something about the NHS. We found something that was interesting, which was this thing, how, how much you cost. And then the, the, the big bet was to how do you make something that's playful, that's fun, that also has that information in there, in a physical object. That's not physical as in like, oh, let's carve a graph. It had to be playful and interactive. So how does a project like that start? for you someone's comes to you or is that something that you're you're pitching for what's the process look like it's quite different with that with that one we pitched for it so a friend of theo's works for the bmj and he happened to see a tweet like advertising commissions they said oh you guys might be you know up for this and we thought that sounds really good so basically we just wrote 300 words on what we wanted to do and send that off they had quite a good application process because then they had another ra- a second round where they shortlist some people and they paid maybe 300 pounds for, for our time the second proposal which is not loads of money but you know it's not nice it shows respect something. it yeah. shows respect to the person that uh, is going to sit down and write the idea yeah and so and you know we wrote the second brief and then we won that one to kind of our surprise really because it was quite competitive and so, uh, other oh, things, and we had the yeah. month to do it yeah which was, it was like it was a very stressful project and it was it, it was stressful but we were very lucky because also at goldsmiths we got a lot of facilities that we used and we had access to students that we employed to come on and basically we worked, we were probably like eight people or something total yeah. that uh, on and off worked in order to deliver something quite complicated in a month. I think the closest analogy would be a Rube Goldberg machine. You put your marble in and your marble you know, runs down, like, it runs down tubes, it goes through funnels and on the way it activates you know, certain like Arduino-driven elements or Raspberry Pi-driven elements. Like, for example, we had one thing, you know, went through and it would, it would, it would be hidden behind a screen. On the screen, there was like an X-ray of a marble like going down someone's throat. And then once it came out of the throat the other end, it would reappear in the real world and then keep going. And later on, we had uh, like a, a pump. What was the pump for? It was some sort of like breathing it, aid. It was a breathing aid, but it was pumped with an electrical pump. Yeah. So that was like the 90-year-old, uh, uh, how much you cost as a 90-year-old or 80 plus or something like that. And everything there was sort of deathbed props. Yeah. And that's why we had the, the thing pumping in the end as, as the ball was coming out. 
I think the most amazing one, which was mostly down to our partner, Jessie, she made something. So it was a medical waste bucket that had a, a surgical glove taped onto the top. And then the marble would drop from the, the top of the cabinet down to the bottom, bounce off the glove into another bucket, like spin around and then drop through that and out through that hole. Good thing you mentioned that. We should say that our, there's a third member. That, uh, since the Marvel run, we met somebody, that Jesse, that did fantastic work and we managed to work very well over the summer. And we decided to join forces and we are now three in Random Quark. It was quite a tough process to build the Marble Run. Uh, especially for me and Theo, it was, our, it was our most physical project. We've worked mostly in software before. And especially for me, I, I like to sit back and design something for ages and ages and then, you know, push it over and then, okay, it's done. And that, that was a really bad idea. You really have to just throw yourself into it. You have to just grab some cardboard and some tape and some blue tack and some marbles and just stick things together and see what works. And then, you know, find out, find the bit that works, discard the bit that doesn't, try again, do that maybe 10 or 20 times. And... That's how you build it up. And then after 20 times, now you can build the real thing. Glue everything down and screw everything together. So yeah, lots and lots of prototyping, I think. And also, I mean, in terms of tricks, basically what we would do is we would have these medical cabinets and then we would say, okay, this one we wanted to last approximately this much. Oh no, approximately we wanted to last this much. And so we would think, okay, what materials can we use here? So we would say like, okay, that first run is about three seconds. We still have seven seconds to go. Then that, okay, what can we do to delay the ball? All right, let's have it fall into a little bucket, like a little test tube, for example, and then that test tube will open. So in that opening, we can hold it there for like three seconds. So that's like a little bit of cheating, you know, where the, an electrical, like a little bit of electronics would hold the ball in order for the time to count. But of course, when you see that, you don't realize that it's done in order to, to delay the ball. It feels like a natural little delay before the ball continues its journey. The most expensive person in the NHS is people above 80. How much was it? Something like 20,000 pounds a year. 20,000 pounds a year you cost as a 80 plus year old. And we had to make it, you had to make the ball last in the 50 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, 50 seconds we had to have the ball. So we had quite complicated journey for the ball to take. And it's a very small cabinet. So there's only so much you can go down. You have to really measure every centimeter that you go down because you need that gravity. Because we don't have anything pushing the ball. It's just gravity traveling down little paths. Yeah, you have to know your tolerances and realize that, you know, two screws are not necessarily alike just because they came out of the same box. That's what I learned. I think just don't be afraid. Like if you're doing something like, like the marble run, don't be afraid to just grab a drill and just drill something and stick it together because otherwise you're never going to learn anything. Like you have to get your hands dirty. Yeah. I think that was the thing that Jesse brought to the team in the yeah, summer that, that we didn't have before. Like that, that she is very much more physical and she would grab things and, and, and break things and cut things. Like we would keep conversing, conversing and discuss, oh, we should do it like that and so on. And then we would meet in her house and she would have already like three prototypes made out of cardboard that we could immediately play with. Yeah, that, that's one thing that Jesse does well. It sort of changed our dynamic that, you know, I will sit down and think, okay, we're going to need three servers, a load balancer. That's going to be connected over here, but we'll have a backup router here. And, you know, then we're going to have an Arduino and a Raspberry Pi and another computer to process the data. And she'd be like, mm, how about we just do it with this cardboard box? And we're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that works. Yeah, she's really good at, you know, slicing through the over-engineering and uh, yeah, coming with something, yeah. Yeah, something simple and practical. 
which because I mean because technology is so complicated and like this is a problem like if you're like a painter you know what you're doing you just paint you have one skill and you you know you put the, the paint on the canvas not to say it's easy but like it's it's kind of one you know there's one direction that you have to go in and with creative technology there are maybe like 10 different like professions that you ought to like have some knowledge of at least and like every little experiment takes at least a week and maybe like you know a month to like really explore so you have you really have to find ways to cut that time down and just and to learn quickly one time on the similar vein we had the project where we had like uh, we used computer vision live on live on stage and computer vision is notoriously hard to do it's you know you know, things change, conditions change, all of a sudden a light comes on and so on, like your algorithms can be messed up. And we spent ages trying to make sure that we can track actors on stage when they come in and so on. It was for an award ceremony. And then it didn't particularly work that well. And then I re- we realized, why the hell did we spend all this time tracking them with computer vision when we could have a mouse over them, like have live feed and have a mouse where we just track manually the people on stage because it wasn't it didn't have to be so accurate. It has to be about the same area. Why didn't we just track them with the mouse and activate things as they pass along? You know, you, you get like sometimes you make this mistake where you're like uh, wooed by the siren that is the technology. Oh, I can solve it. I can solve it. Well, everything has a cost, and that was too much to. Yeah, it's kind of like a sad question I have to ask like potential clients sometimes. You know, because it's the kind of question that's going to lose us the job. I have to say, well, but why do you need us? Like, you know, why can't you just like do it with this pre-existing service? Or like, why why is the technology actually beneficial at all? Some of my rules for like uh, interact or like creative technology art, it's like, is it is it distinguishable like from a random noise generator? Yeah, you know, because someone might hook up. Like, I've seen a project, for example, where you hook up like say uh, like the temperature, and that affects the speed of a video as it as it's playing through. Uh, that actually that's that yeah it's, it's on at the serpentine at the moment but you get there and actually like it doesn't doesn't really make any difference to your actual experience of it like the technology is really complex and it works and there's probably like three people there like you know frantically trying to make it you know keep it up but you can't you can't actually tell the difference between that and just like you know it changing randomly so what's the point maybe if the, the thermometer was on you let's say, and then they said, oh, you know what, that's you, and look, that was a person before you that's slightly colder, and that's the person before him that had the fever. But unless you see that thing, yeah. what difference does it make whether it's stock market data versus temperature? Yeah, there's a book that I'd really recommend. It's by Don, Don Norman, and it's the, the Design of Everyday Things. Hmm. And he has four principles about like what makes good design, one of which is feedback. Like when you do something... Like when you press the button for the lift, like a light turns on, and you know the you see something happen, like a reaction to your action, and yeah, I, I think the artists are afraid to do that kind of thing because they want to make it cryptic. You don't you don't want your art to be obvious because then it you know it kind of spoils it. But I think like interactive art is so complicated that you don't have to work to make it cryptic. Like no matter how hard you work to make it obvious, it will still be cryptic. So. Yeah, just relax yeah. about that. And, and this holds true also lately with a lot of machine learning art. And often you have like you know things that you know you are seeing, and there's just often very little explanation uh, for the lay person. We have trouble understanding what the hell things are when we when we see things, and we often wonder like what, what does what does the 
For whom did they make this? Because often you, you just don't get it. I sent an article the other day which was about the light switch and, and how we've got these Alexa or Google the home and you, yeah. you can activate a light bulb now, which I have in my house. So I'm, I, I'm not really judging people for doing it, but how that's design-wise such an odd thing. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. What, what, what cool thing? Technology-wise, <laughs> to say... Oh, Living room light on and the yeah, light yeah. comes on. And I guess that, that concept of the tech is interesting, but mm-hmm. design-wise or, or art-wise, actually, is that really, is that emotive in the right way or is, yeah. that, is it explaining something in an interesting way? Yeah. Um, or is it just, that's quite interesting technology. Uh, it's a really hot topic, I think, and yeah. it's something that a lot of people are trying to work out, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... I. I've got three uh, Google Homes, actually. It's an absolute nightmare trying to get the lights on sometimes. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't really present ourselves as artists. It's not that we don't make things that are art, but I, I feel it's a it's a label that can be a little bit trapping sometimes. Because sometimes you, sometimes you make things that, if you insist on selling it as art, like, people look at it as art instead of just what it is. Uh, like our emotional mirror, like, when we exhibited that, people came up to me and they're like, oh, well, what's it, yeah, well, what's it for? And they didn't. I gave like a number of answers, but they didn't seem to be satisfied until I said like, "Well, it's just for fun, really." And they're like, "Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I like it then." There was a, there was a mirror where you were. It was reading your facial expressions, and if you were smiling, if you were happy, it would go to the internet, grab random happy tweets, automatically do like sentiment analysis on the tweets, and would show them like as little bubbles left and right of your face. All of a sudden, you would frown. Poof! This would disappear. And you would have negative tweets around your random negative tweets from the internet. I, I feel more comfortable thinking of uh, of myself, at least, as somebody that makes funny contraptions or something like that, or magic, magic toys or something like that. I, I feel more comfortable with that, whether that's a big installation or a performance or a, a tiny little thing, rather than uh, somebody that makes uh, art. How do you find that concept of prototyping, improvising, exploring, and then going, actually, we need to get something out the door. I feel like most of our improvisation is more engineering stuff, really. I think, I think that most of our ideas, are, like most of the sort of the core ideas, have like stayed the same. And like the, most of the sort of the changes we make are like, well, how, how do we get to that idea? Like, how do we actually do it? Like, for example, we have, we, there's an idea that we, we're developing at the moment. It's a, a huggable tree. So basically, it's kind of like it's a playful installation designed to like you know, to get people to you know to come together at festivals and just you know, have a bit of fun. So basically, one person goes up a tree and they hug it, and that lights up other trees, and then other people go and hug that tree at the same time, and then they light up together and they sort of they interact. And the idea is just to get those you know strangers just like you know having a conversation. And we started off with uh, using actual lights in the tree, so we use LEDs and spotlights and stuff. Or well, that that was the plan. We started with LEDs. And we tested that, and it, 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 it didn't really show up. And the spot, also spotlights turn out it's like really expensive, which we didn't know, which is often the case, actually. Uh, and LEDs make the tree look like a Christmas tree. Yeah, and we yeah didn't, also uh, that. The idea was for it to be like an organically lit tree that is almost magical, as if the light comes actually from the tree itself. Yeah, so then we thought, okay, we just want light on the tree. Okay, let's experiment. Let's grab a projector and, you know, projection map onto the tree. And, you know, it'll look like the light is coming from the tree itself. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's what we ended up doing. So we, start, we started out with the same sort of idea, like we want the tree to light up, like really basic principle. 
and then experiment in like different ways to, to actually get to that. But yeah, I always feel in like in the in the ideas process, the best ideas are the ones that just kind of like appear. Which annoys me because I'm a very like logical person. And I really like spreadsheets. Like, and I have lots and lots of spreadsheets where I've like tried to like you know parameterize it, like the idea generation, like reduce it down to abstract concepts, and then like go work back from there. But it just doesn't doesn't really work, or at least not for me. Which is a great shame. We worked with Satsi Wellness, the famous company of pharmaceutical marketing. Yeah. Right. Anyway, and they wanted to rebrand themselves. So they wanted to have something to do with emotions with a new brand. So we had a chat with them, and this was it was a nice collaboration because we had a few conversations about. And then in the end, what we ended up doing is we were using EEG data, and so we put like a little brain scanner in on people's heads, and we got electrical activity from the brain, and we used that in order to generate images, images that look like uh, that look a bit like watercolor so yeah. using some swarm algorithms, so like many, many particles traveling across paths and carrying paint with them and smearing the canvas. We asked people to think of something very emotional in their past. So people would say like, oh, the day my dog died or the day my daughter was born or the day I went to university or something like that. We got that data, we recorded it, we turned them into paintings, and everybody got a business card that had their name and behind the memory and the painting. And there was a big exhibition in Truman Brewery where all the employees of the company and then guests came along, had um, their, in, in big frames the, um, their thoughts on display. Tell them about the website. It, we also turned it into a, a, a live version, so it would track sentiment on Twitter for particular keywords. We'd have this portrait like gradually morph from like, emotion to emotion. So using his colors to represent them and like affecting the parameters of the image. So the, the idea is they wanted to be the first brand that responds to emotion. That was the, that was the sort of the tagline, right? Mm-hmm. My sense of, of, of what you guys do is you, you actually you take a lot of that kind of creative technology work, work but you quite a good way you're, you're able to enter the kind of the brand agency sort of world, which is quite competitive and quite interesting world which is a bit separate to say where quite a lot of creative technologies work and they might work maybe with cultural organisations quite yeah. often but they might not necessarily quite step into some of those those worlds how do you find do you find that you're you're coming at it from quite a different perspective to some of the people that might be competing for that kind of work yeah I don't know I, I don't know how much competition there is really because there are there are only a few companies that like sort of I feel like do, are in the same area I know it's like a sort of a handful I've, ne- I've never got the sense that the, like the competition has been like the issue of getting jobs. Like the the main issue is just that it's like it's too wacky, really. And they're like, why are we going to spend like you know ten thousand pounds on on this idea? That's you know, completely mad. And making custom software, like uh, making custom software for somebody for their big launch or for their event or for their installation, or something. I mean, making software is a very expensive business, you know, and it's a risky business, you know. So most companies, you know, they might say, oh, you know what, let's just pay this person to make a nice website, this agency to make a nice website for us, and that would be our launch, let's say, rather than say, let's spend on making a game in a shopping mall where people will pass by and it will be interactive and so on. It's, you know, just there's a high risk profile to these kind of projects. We also do work for agencies as well. So the agency will pitch the idea to the company 
and then you know they'll they'll do sort of some of the creative part and they'll say okay but we also need you know your creative technology expertise to you know make this actually happen for example for in the case of Satsi for example they found us we, we got a call and said hey we saw you doing this would you like to come in and, and have a chat this is a discussion that we often have internally and we are keeping now much better records of where people come from and so on but we get some just very wacky requests sometimes, no? I mean, we get we got somebody the other day from Korea contacting us. We can never quite tell where the business will come from. It's not like we're, we have like an agent that brings us a steady st- uh, stream of, of jobs. Uh, they've all been usually novel ways of getting jobs, right? Yeah, they all come from different places. Fantastic thing about creative technology is nobody comes to you and says like okay i want a you know a wordpress site um you know can you make it for next week they say can you do this thing that no one else has ever done before and you'll have to learn like five new things to do it yeah. and yeah that's what drives me uh you just you just get to try like you know all sorts of new things and you also just get you get to make art you get to explore ideas yeah that's what drives me yeah for me too i think the same like uh, learning things and sometimes this is also something that we sometimes argue with each other and we sort of have to keep each other in uh, in check because you you get so absorbed sometimes with uh, learning something new that you have to step back a bit and say like okay why am i learning this right now is this is somebody paying me to, to, to be learning this or am I doing it just because it's just so much fun? And will I be using it immediately or will I put it in the shelf and forget about it? But yeah, learning is, is, is something that is, uh, is great in this job. Well, that was Tom Chambers and Theo Papa Theodoru. I hope you enjoyed it, and I would definitely recommend you checking out their work at randomquark.com. Plus, if you like the look of some of their work, then why not reach out to them too? As for these podcasts, we are currently looking for ideas of new people to interview. So if you are an artist that works with technologists... Or if you have ideas of some people that you would like to hear us interview, then get in contact. The best thing to do is to contact us on Twitter at Technique UK or to email us through the Create Hub website. That's create-hub.com. In terms of other Technique news, well, my co-host Richard F. Adams has an exhibition coming up. The exhibition features his Haunted Selfies series. The concept is that where most people post selfies showing their idolised lives, Richard is showcasing the hidden dark thoughts that everyone expresses in a selfie form. So show him some support by either visiting the exhibition between Wednesday the 8th of May um, to Sunday the 19th of May at the Robert Phillips Gallery in Walton-on-Thames. Or, if you can't make it to the actual exhibition, at least share some links to some of his work online. You can find out more on richardfadams.com. That's all for this month's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. 
And if you're on iTunes, also give us a five-star rating, as it really does help out with making our show more visible on the iTunes charts. So thanks once again to Tom and Theo, and of course you for listening. I'll speak to you again next month, where we'll be talking to another artist about technology. In the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.